Good evening. Kind of bummed I can't play with some of the monster trucks and stuff in there. I actually uh, must have miscommunicated. I have a little bit more to read from Matthew 1. So just in case you start preaching, you're like, that's not what I just read. All right, so we'll cover those two things as well. So let me keep going through Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had borne a son. Called his name Jesus. I keep my um, there you go. I keep my font really large on my computer screen, so I don't use my glasses. Hopefully, we're done with that. I don't know where you guys were. Um, uh, I don't know what happened last week with you on, in Snowmageddon. What? The wise men. Did you actually cover the wise men too? Very good. Okay, so those guys are funky and weird, right? There's Zoroastrian like kings and, and, and crazy folk, and then the week before was Herod, who's kind of nutty. Um, and so this week is actually the painfully normal Joseph. Some people call him Saint Joseph. Mary's husband is what he's referred to in Scripture often. It's Jesus' adoptive father. I like to call him average Joe or ordinary Joe. And as you turn to Matthew and you read through him, I want to remind you of something. You are ordinary. And you need to allow yourselves, and I need to allow myself, to experience the average of us. And to experience God's redemption and kindness in the normal. A living amid the pots and pans and poopy diapers and PowerPoints and paper trails of your days. And yet, imagine as soon as I say that you're average, at least the way I was reared, something in you goes, I'm not really excited about that statement. And so I totally understand, because people don't want to be ordinary. I at least was trained to be exceptional. And anything other than that is an apple. But have you noticed the value system against ordinary? We live in a world that is afraid of the ordinary, which by definition means it is afraid of itself. A few years back, Dove Soaps created an ad with average women. And you would have thought the world was turned upside down. Wow, regular people in ads. Six normal-looking women was completely revolutionary, almost scandalous. 
in the advertising world. Have you heard of Third Love? Kind of an anti-Victoria secret company. Lane Bryant has done similar things. These are body positive influencers who like hashtag we're all angels. They're fighting a cult of beauty and progress and better and new and improved in a world that says average is weakness. The average dress size for an American woman is 14. Six makes you a plus model. We got a problem. We got a problem with average. A days in which scandal is ordinary and ordinary is scandalous. We have to attend to that. And so the sermon's kind of really simple this morning. I think the story of Joseph shows us that God uses ordinary people doing ordinary stuff to bring about an extraordinary redemption. Ordinary people. When you look at Joseph in, in verse 19 of chapter 1, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. This language of just man, really, it's not a crazy translation to say something like, this is a really good guy. He's a carpenter, a regular guy with a regular job, median income 40 to 80, middle class values, pays taxes, votes on, on and off of uh, term elections and in local elections. Salt of the earth kind of guy. He's a good man. He's a just man. And yet he's not reckless. What he is, just so you know, if it's confusing to you whether he's married or not, he's not actually married yet. He's betrothed, which means super duper uber engaged. It's all the commitment without the consummation. And so he is good, even kind. He does not want to make an example of her. He doesn't want to cause public shame to her. But he's not exactly behind the, you see, Joe, what happened was the Holy Spirit came, and that's why I'm pregnant. So he's not quite behind that. And yet he's not going to try to shame her. And yes, he's going to make her pay for, not make her pay for the consequences publicly, but he's also not going to take on all those that all that shame and responsibility is. So this is why he, he intends to divorce her. He's going to have her deal with her actions. And yet Joseph and Matthew is, 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 is and in, actually the rest of the scriptures as well, is, is so ordinary. He's got ordinary fears and ordinary issues that he's dealing with. You know, the angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to, make, to take Mary as your wife. He's rightly scared about the ramifications of what it would mean for him, his family, what relationships he's going to have, and how that works out with this supernatural pregnancy that's occurred. How does he go to his boys and go, hey, you see, what happened was it was the Holy Spirit. And when he heard about Herod's son or uh, uh, taking over for Herod, it was raining over Judea, he was also scared again, the scripture says. And that's rightly concerning. He should be scared about those things. And so he's like, not a scaredy cat, not significantly heroic. He's kind of normal. He's kind of like the rest of us. He's ordinary. 
outside of the passage that we have here today, you, you get to introduce Joseph in a different way. Actually, someone's talking about Jesus in Matthew 13. And he says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this, and is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? You see what happened there? Everybody gets named but Joseph. Everybody else has an identity. He's just the carpenter. Unassuming. And no one assuming much of him. He's the Bobby Brown to Whitney. I, I tried this on the first, uh, I preached this earlier, and I said, it's the K-Fed to Brittany, and everybody was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I asked him to give me more. So he's the Stedman to Oprah. He's the Watson to Sherlock Holmes. If you got any more, I'm glad to take it later And what I want you to know is that this is deeply, deeply good news. One of the supporting cast members of the nativity scene is a person like you and me, an average Joe and an average Jane. We live in a society that wants to make all of us, wants all of us to be rock stars, elite geniuses, the strong gifted leader, the omnicompetent master of their world. And the church isn't any better. We did the exact same thing. Many years back, there was this book called Wild at Heart by a guy named Eldridge. There's some good about it. I mostly didn't like the book, but there's this particular part I really didn't like. He was counseling somebody, and he was telling them to take control of his life. You need to remember, he was talking to the counselee, that, that, that you're Braveheart. You're William Wallace. And the guy was like, but I feel like the guy with the pitchfork on the fourth row. He goes, no, you're Braveheart. You're William Wallace. And all I can think is, no, you're not. And that's okay. You're not William Wallace. You are the fourth guy, or the guy on the fourth row of the pitchfork. So, pitchfork people, we are not exceptional. Most of us spend our days doing ordinary things among ordinary people. You guys go to work, and I go to work most days, doing things we know how to do. And many of you go to school trying to learn some things that might possibly apply to your future life. Those of you who just finished exams, I should get an amen out of that. We do normal things all day, and it's completely okay. It's good news because this, was, this is what it means. It's like this incredible Francis Schaeffer article called, This Means There's No Little Places and There's No Little People. Because everything matters. Everything we do in the mundane and the monotony of our lives matters. One of my professors used to say, you should, when it comes to ministering or trying to understand what the scripture says, dare to be boring. And what he meant by that is not to be unimpassioned or riskless or uninspired or careless. It means to give yourself to the beauty of the monotony of things learned before you. And that you don't have to be innovative at every point. And it's not all the tyranny of the progress or of progress or impact, impact, impact. You don't have to live under that cultic idea. But you can give yourselves to the faithfulness of the daily grind. And you know what else this means? It means that if you didn't get the job, or the girl, or the boy, or the education, or the sale, or even if you don't get this sermon, it's okay. You bring me a bag. 
See, you don't have to be the best mother or daughter or sister or brother or son or father or friend or pastor or congregant. We can take superlatives off the table. Normal means we're full of holes and full of holiness. And of course, it's not okay to sin. Touchdown. That's good. But if you do sin, you know what that makes you? Pretty ordinary. You don't have to be omnicompetent. You just don't. Now, many of you may know this, and many of you may not know this, and many of you know him, and maybe not know him. But Rob Alexander, our operations officer, uh, uh, has uh, decided to go back into the regular working world after 18 years as our operations officer. Now, what's, per- what's particularly interesting to maybe you guys also is that, and you may or may not know this, is that operations officer also created the entire system uh, that does the HR finance and operations for four churches, including yours. I bring up precisely because most of you probably don't know him. And yet there's this regular guy doing these regular, ordinary things that has sustained Redeemer at Salem and Redeemer Yakin Valley and Southside for a long, long time. He gave a testimony this week, and, uh, uh, earlier this morning. He said, 18 years on staff, he's had three bosses, three different job titles, four websites, five copiers, a six parcel of land purchase, seven different service start and end times, and nine receptionists, and almost a thousand different bulletin proofreads. <laughs> I think that's great. I think that's amazing. And it's just a regular work. See, no one had a ticker tape parade when he was cleaning out the sewage of our offices, which were both the youth offices for ministry and also Ben's office one weekend. No one in our church has cheered or in your church has cheered that on December 31st, he is there to close his business, taking in the checks, the last minute checks for all four, sir, for all four churches to get him in at the end. And yet, what he's done, he's built the ministry of beauty he's created, both unknown and somewhat known, is glorious. And that's how we see Joseph. Not just a regular guy, but a regular guy doing kind of regular stuff. He's doing average things. Now, I, I, jo- Joseph's giftedness was not a visionary leader. It was a carpenter. I don't think he ever won, like, homecoming people. But I want you, so I want you to be amazed at how simply, even if miraculously, how simply God communicates to Joseph. How he guides the dreams, through the dreams, of most likely an illiterate carpenter. He gives him dreams and he speaks directly to them in those dreams. Now that's miraculous in its own right, right? Um, there are four different times in our passages that he appears to him in a dream and speaks to him. And again, that's a big deal. That is not ordinary. If it is ordinary, let's talk. Be interested having a few conversations with you. Um, that's not ordinary, but the non-ordinariness of that is from God, not from Joseph. Joseph is actually just hearing directly what he is and is not supposed to do. And my guess is, right about the third or fourth time he gets a dream, I wonder if he's like, huh, this is kind of the new way it goes, it goes down. Again, I'm not concentrating on the miraculous nature of the dreams of God speaking to you, but the directness and the simplicity of the direction he was given. And again, Michael, I was trying to get myself into these things. What about, you know, he's had the third dream now, and he's 200 miles in his rider truck on the way to Egypt. I'm wondering if he's going, was that really God in that dream, or is that just some bad hummus? You know, like, what's going on here? 
And yet his faithful calling to be faithful in, in his day and age was what's, what's going on. It's kind of how we approach a scripture. It's a miraculous reality that we receive the inspired word of God to us. But how do you and I receive that? Sitting sermons, by opening it up and reading it. Very simple, very um, ordinary means of receiving God's grace and His kindness. John Calvin calls it prattle, the scripture to us. It's goo-goo-ga-ga, it's baby talk to us. He says that when God prattles to us in scripture in a clumsy, homely style, let us know that it is done on account of the love He bears on us, or He bears for us. And the crazy thing is that when He tells them what to do in these dreams and the simplicity... It's actually not a lot of hard stuff he tells them to do. Take Mary as your wife, call the kid Jesus, rise and take the child and the mother and flee to Egypt. Now that's under duress circumstances that are in, are in duress, but it really is move. And then later move back. Move here, okay. Move there, okay. God's redemption is worked out in a ride of truck in a kind of normal way of being a family. And in some sense, it's thoroughly uninteresting. Again, it's a big deal because God's doing miraculous work in it. It's a big deal because, um, uh, uh, because there is a, a heightened sense of concern before Herod dies. But it's not like the task itself is difficult. He didn't say, juggle your way to Egypt. He just said, go to Egypt. G.G. Chesterton says, the Bethlehem story is so plain, it's enough to be understood by the shepherds and possibly even the sheep. Ordinary, simple, average guidance and actions are how God's, it's, it's God's preferred change agents in the world. God has ordained that all of life, all of our experiences are in fact religious or sacred experiences. And that includes wiping babies' bottoms and cleaning up your Excel spreadsheet. We don't live for the mountaintops. We get them sometimes and that's great, but that's not where we live. How many of you can remember 10 sermons? If you can, how about 20? Now put the percentages on that. Y'all ate? The word was given to you? How about the sacraments? The spigots of grace, the very water fountains of God's kindness and love to us. How many of you remember 10 experiences of the supper or baptism? And sometimes it's sweet iced tea, and sometimes it's lukewarm water, but you still drink. And the church, y'all, I love y'all's church. I love hanging out with y'all. I love coming to preach with you guys, but y'all just normal like the rest of us. Y'all full of fools and weaklings and heroics and unheroics and rebellion and goodness and glory and grit and all sorts of stuff, which is kind of normal. No superlatives here. And yet, you've been met over and over again in a very ordinary place. And you have been kept and hidden in the very life of Christ. Over and over and over and over again. And most of it is just regular. Most of it is just ordinary. Friends, I'm convinced that the virtue of the fragrance that unbelieving people who don't believe will see in us is not the big heroic act, but the faithful living, the daily grind of kindness and love and witness to our neighbors.
I love G.K. Chesterton. I crush on him pretty hard. He writes this about this monotony. He says, his routine, God, might be due not to lifelessness, but to a rush of life. For instance, in children, he says, when they find some game or joke that they specifically enjoy, I think peekaboo or something like that, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they are nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun? And every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may, not, may be that God makes every daisy separately because he's never tired of making daisies. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy, and we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The re repetition in nature may not be mere recurrence. It may be theatrical on That's how it is. That's recurring. That's actually extraordinary writing, by the way. <laughs> Friends, we can be freed from the senseless days of feeling and of inadequacy that drive us to the next promotion, the next friendship, the next lover, the next job, the next drug, the next religious experience. We can dare to see and look for the encore, dare to hope that God might actually meet you and change you and change even the world through the monotony of our days. So we can dare to hear the encore in the guidance of his word, in the experience of the sacraments, in the serving of the church in kind of normal ways, by changing diapers, by doing the average stuff we do every day. We don't have to let the tyranny of excitement guide us, because that won't fill you up. And let the, ordinary capture, let the ordinary capture our imagination and help us grow young again. Average people, average acts. And yet, God does those things, the average people and average stuff. And yet he does bring about this extraordinary redemption. First, an extraordinary purpose. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall be conceived and bear a son, and, you will call, and he will be, uh, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Or later... This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I called my son. Or later, he lived in Nazareth so that he was sp what was spoken might be fulfilled. You see this fulfillment theme. And here's what I want you to th think. Is that I'm pretty sure that Joseph, riding around in his rider truck, was not going, You know what? I think I'm about to fulfill a thousand years of prophecy. Now maybe later he got hints in, in, of it. But like in the middle of it, he's probably worried about other things, like whether his wife's going to like have a baby or not, or whether they were going to ever leave Egypt, or whether my hair was ever going to die, or they were going to be safe or free, a bunch of other little regular stuff, regular everyday and day out stuff. I doubt that he could trace his fingers across redemptive history and understand the big picture. And yet the Father does. God is saying, hey, I got this. It is under control. I am fulfilling my extraordinary purposes through you. 
The father and the author and the force behind all of this is saying, look y'all, I am the executive producer and I'm the director and I am the screenwriter and I have written you apart. Listen, God used a census, a, a normal civic practice, basically a voter registration drive to fulfill redemptive history. And he uses the dreams and craziness of an angry despot, which is a little bit odd. But if you think about history, not that odd to have an angry despot. Inherit to fulfill the rest of the prophecy that's coming out of Egypt and being fulfilled in Nazareth. He uses these ordinary things extraordinarily. Which means there is no meaningless space. There is no meaningless activity for us. There's no meaningless work. There's no meaningless conversation. And there is no meaningless people that we interact with. All things, every square inch of creation required God's attention. And the reality of the gospel is, and the promise therein, is that he has pursued that redemption as far as the curse is found. And I can say this with surety to you. If you have collapsed upon the mercy of Jesus, then this is true of you. The exact same way that our Lord, that, that the Heavenly Father has knit the redemptive story of Jesus into Joseph's life, it is equally as true for you. Because it's not really even about purpose, but it is about that person, the Christ, Jesus. He is the hero of this story. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Your story, Joes and Janes, ordinary and average Joes and Janes, my story are tied up not in our heroics or our impressive acts, but Christ Jesus' heroics and his impressive acts, the one who is called the Savior of our sin. Can you imagine somewhere along the line, Joseph goes, I'm actually the adopted father of the king of kings. Wow. Someone had to make it right, and someone else does. Someone else had to bring the power to bear in this situation. And someone else does. Someone else had to be the change agent. And someone else did. And someone needed to forgive our failures and our weakness and our folly and our anger and our rebellion. And someone else did. She will bear a son and you shall call him. You call his name Jesus. For he will save people from their sins. So let us repent of the big event syndrome. Y'all, children are reared by 100,000 average decisions and conversations and kissing boo-boos and foreheads. Marriages, quite similarly. 100,000 ordinary acts of service. A culture and a church by 100,000 uh, uh, courageous conversations that produce love and safety and power and joy in a community. And all of it is 100,000 times to return to the, to the Savior again and again for forgiveness of sin to receive your identity in him, to be reminded again that your life is hidden in the heroic one and so that you can live. All very ordinary, except for the fact that we have an extraordinary Savior. 
So the moral of the story is simple. Jesus is William Wallace. And you are not. So let it be true of us that we can pitch up, pick up our pitchforks and our hoes and our shovels and our computers and our diaper bags and wage the battle of love because we have a hero that goes before us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us and that you are our hero and that we can gladly sit on the fourth row and that you've shaped us and you've made us and that you go for us and that we are in you in some wild and crazy way. And thank you that everything we do all day long matters because you make it matter. And everything we do all day long is under your reign, under the banner of your forgiveness and mercy, under your love, under your kindness, under your rule. And in it, you give us peace, joy, courage, even amid the monotony of my days. We thank you. Amen.